Well, thank you once again for joining me in this Verse by Verse Bible Study Podcast. I'm Randy Duncan, and in this episode, we're going to be covering Genesis chapter 46, which will finally see Jacob and Joseph reunited. But real quickly, just in the way of review, in the last chapter, Joseph finally revealed his true identity to his brothers who had sold him into slavery over 20 years earlier. And overwhelmed with emotion, Joseph forgave his brothers for their past actions and reassured them that God had orchestrated these events for a greater purpose. Joseph then urged his brothers to bring their father Jacob and their families down into Egypt to escape the ongoing famine. And so we saw that that pivotal chapter highlighted themes of forgiveness and reconciliation and God's providence in the face of challenging and difficult circumstances in life for which we may not understand all the reasons. But that leads us now into chapter 46 with the first four verses reading, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So Jacob, who is now being referred to as Israel, sets out for Egypt with all that he has, and he's beginning his journey presumably from Hebron, but he stops in Beersheba, which is about 20 miles away. Now keep in mind as we go throughout this chapter, we're going to see that the patriarchal period in the history of Israel comes to an end here. Because although Jacob's descent into Egypt may at first seem like a, like a family trip to see Joseph, it's actually much more than that. And it may have been the last bit of motivation Jacob needed to also escape and survive the famine, but there's a lot more going on here. But on his way into Egypt, Jacob stops at Beersheba. He stops there to worship. And that's very interesting because he hasn't seen Joseph in over 20 years now. So you'd think he would be in this huge hurry, not stopping for anything or anyone, just like I would. So why stop? Well, a couple of possible reasons. First of all, remember, Jacob's much older now. And this is going to be a very long, a very exhausting and taxing journey. And he may also be a little bit stressed out by leaving the promised land. He may be afraid of dying in a foreign land. And his fears may be amplified by remembering that God had expressly forbidden his father Isaac from going down to Egypt back in chapter 26. Furthermore, he may also be troubled by remembering God's announcement to Abraham even further back in chapter 15 that his descendants were destined to become slaves and oppressed as strangers in a foreign land. And so maybe Jacob is worried, not wanting to be the leader who brings this about. And so it may be that Jacob simply stops in Beersheba to worship before he sets out. And it's no accident that he stops in Beersheba, because this is where his father Isaac built an altar back in chapter 26. And there's no mention of Jacob building an altar so he may very well be using that same altar. And it says that Jacob offered sacrifices. The Hebrew word used here for sacrifices, zebahim, is a term used only one other time in Genesis and also in connection with Jacob. It was different than the normal burnt offering because only a small portion of the animal was actually burned on the altar 
while most of it was actually eaten in a sort of communal meal. So it can be viewed a couple of different ways here. Either Jacob is offering thanks to God for Joseph still being alive, or this offering on the altar functions to establish a sort of communion with God and the worshiper, and also to establish the right setting for the vision that will follow. And in fact, both of those may be true here. But by stopping at the same altar as his father Isaac, Jacob shows that he worships the same God. And he's also probably seeking reassurance from God that he will be with him as they leave the promised land. If you remember, Abraham's walking with God began with a divine revelation from God who called him out of his land. Now with Jacob, his story will not begin, but will end with God also sharing a revelation, calling him out of his land. But while worshiping there in Beersheba, God speaks to Jacob, saying, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now this is the same reassurance that God provided to both Abraham and Isaac, and it will also be given to Moses as well. And I think something here is noteworthy, that the most often repeated phrase by God in the entire Bible is, do not be afraid, fear not. Maybe we should listen to that more often. But notice that nowhere in the text does it say that Jacob was worried or fearful. He doesn't actually express that anxiety anywhere. But God tells him, do not be afraid. And the idea here is that although our anxieties and our fears may not be expressed, they may not be communicated verbally, they're already known to God. Psalms 139 tells us, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. Notice also that although the text is now calling him Israel, God addresses him as Jacob, which also gives us sort of a clue to his psychological state here because God addresses him by his name of weakness. But God tells Jacob that he will go down to Egypt with him, not I'll protect you as you travel, not I'll watch out for you, but I myself will go down with you. I mean, wow, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to hear that before you started on a journey you knew was going to be difficult or very stressful, one that you were worried about? But you have. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus told us, and behold, I am with you, even until the end of the age. And I would point out, though, that even though God was with the Israelites, his presence does not necessarily eliminate pain. It just assures us that God is there in the midst of it. I mean, maybe we have provision, maybe we have some protection through pain and suffering, but we will not necessarily escape it. I mean, even when Jesus tells us that he's with us, even until the end of the age, he also tells us in John 16, that I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, this emphasizes that just because you're a Christian or just because you believe in God and you try to live a good life, you're not immune from tribulation, from pain and suffering in this world. But it's important to remember that God is with you through that pain and suffering. You know that problem of pain and suffering in the world, the so-called problem of evil? It's one of the main reasons non-believers give for not believing in God. And of all the reasons people give for not believing, 
I can at least sympathize with this one. I mean, it is really sad and disheartening and frustrating to see so much suffering and evil in the world. But I'm not going to get into that issue in depth here. I'm not going to provide some theodicy or free will defense here. That's not what we're doing in this episode. But I will just say this. Remember that far from being absent or uncaring to the pain and suffering that we see and experience, God willingly came down to us, suffered an unimaginable death for our sake. And so to me, this demonstrates that rather than being cold and distant at our suffering, God willingly chose to join us in that experience of pain and suffering. Rather than being distant to suffering, he has become part of it. And so if nothing else, that should cause us to at least consider the nature and the mind and the character of God. And maybe, not only does the cross represent pain and suffering, but what Jesus accomplished on the cross actually provided for us a remedy for the cause of our suffering. But back to Jacob here. After God tells him to not be afraid and that he will be with Jacob, he goes on to tell him that down in Egypt, he will make him into a great nation. This was the promise to his father Isaac and to Abraham. But here, God is sort of elaborating on that promise, providing more detail, more clarity. Because remember this, way back in chapter 15, when God ratified the covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham that his people would be in a land not their own for 400 years, and that there they would be enslaved and mistreated. In chapter 15, verse 13, God told Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And now, Jacob learns that this foreign land will be Egypt. But despite all of the hardships they'll experience there, they will grow into a nation. God is working out his plan there, having already sent Joseph to set the stage. Egypt will be the place God chooses to form his nation. But now, Jacob must also realize that this is not just a temporary move to see Joseph and wait out the famine. He now knows that he's going to be there for the rest of his life. But God continues with even more detail by telling Jacob, For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you, and I will also bring you up again. So again, God is reassuring Jacob of the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and to himself to give the patriarchs and their descendants the land of Canaan. And finally, God tells Jacob, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now the text literally says, and Joseph shall set his hand upon your eyes. And this is a reference to the custom of the eldest son or maybe the nearest relative gently closing the eyes of the deceased. It's a promise that Joseph will outlive Jacob and will be there at his death. And so God's presence will be with Jacob until he dies. He will die in peace, just like Abraham did, and Joseph will be there. And I can't think of a better way to die or to know that when I die, that this would be the situation. One thing of note here, and you pay attention to this as we move forward, but this is the last recorded communication of God to the patriarchs. The next recorded special revelation from God will come 400 years later when God calls out to a man named Moses. But verses 5 through 7 continue. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, 
the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So after stopping in Beersheba to worship and receiving the reassurance from God, Jacob sets out on his way to Egypt. And the Hebrew verb used here expresses a quick and a decisive action or with a firm resolve. In other words, once Jacob has received God's word, there's no more delay. Notice that it's Jacob's sons who carried Jacob and the children and the wives. Jacob is old now and he's too weak to be physically leading this journey. And so it's his sons who take charge in carrying out the migration. And it says that they took their livestock and their goods. Because remember that Pharaoh had told the sons not to worry about bringing any of their possessions. He told them, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. But they don't make any assumptions here. They do not presume upon Pharaoh's hospitality. They bring everyone and all their possessions. I mean, this is a total migration. Verse 8 continues, Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, and then it goes on for the next 17 verses, listing all of the descendants who came into Egypt with Jacob. Now in the interest of podcast listeners, I'm not going to read these 17 verses of genealogy and descendants which lists Jacob's sons and their wives and children and grandchildren and so forth. I'll let you do that on your own if you're interested. And so I'm going to skip down to verses 25 and 26, which, after listing the descendants, reads, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, depending on how deep you want to study these verses, you'll find that there is some disagreement about the actual number of people who came down with Jacob. I mean, was it actually 70? Who's included and who's not included? Is the list biological or is it positional, etc., etc.? And to be honest, I'm not aware of an absolutely certain way to solve the problem of reconciling this number because the list of people who migrated may be slightly different depending upon the reason for the list and who is included and who is not. However, we do know that this number does not include Jacob's daughter-in-laws or his granddaughters, and so it was definitely more than a total of 70 people who came down. Now, this number may very well be absolutely accurate, 70 people depending on who's included, but it may also be typological in nature, meaning just like 70 is used elsewhere in the Bible, it's expressing the idea of totality or completeness. So for example, Moses chose 70 elders. Israel spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. There were 70 elders that comprised Israel's Sanhedrin. And so therefore, it may just simply be emphasizing the comprehensive nature of the move into Egypt because this event is the fulfillment of Genesis 15:13. In other words, this new nation that God will form is represented by an idea and complete number. However, I do think it's also interesting that 70 is the number of nations that were formed after the Tower of Babel, where God dispersed the people. 
the so-called table of nations found in Genesis chapter 10. But we continue with verses 28 through 30. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Wow, I, I can't even imagine how Jacob and Joseph must have felt at this time. The amount of emotions, the flood of emotions that they must have been experiencing. But first, it says that Jacob sent Judah on ahead of him to lead the way to Goshen. Again, Judah is assuming this leadership role, and as I've mentioned before, it's only fitting that Judah would assume this leadership role in reuniting Jacob and Joseph because it was Judah who was primarily responsible for separating them over 20 years ago. And I think it's noteworthy that Jacob was also separated from his brother Esau for about 20 years as well. Jacob hasn't had an easy, stress-free life here. But notice that it says Joseph prepared his chariot and went out to meet Jacob. Despite Joseph's exalted position, he doesn't wait for Jacob to come to him. In other words, this is not some exalted, pompous, arrogant ruler waiting on his subject to come to him. This is an anxious son racing to greet his beloved father. And in fact, it tells us that rather than the subject presenting himself before the ruler, that actually Joseph presented himself before Jacob. I mean, what a great example of a show of respect for his father and an act of humility on his part. And after doing so, he fell on his neck and wept for a long time. Again, I can hardly even imagine. I mean, this year, it'll be 20 years since my own father passed. The same amount of time Jacob and Joseph have been separated. And I can't even imagine learning somehow that he was still alive and then being reunited with him. I mean, the range of emotions that you would experience and go through, it would almost be indescribable. But notice what they say to one another. Nothing. Initially, no words are exchanged at all because no words are adequate. In life, there are just some moments for which words fall short, where there are no words that can truly capture the beauty of the moment. And any attempts to describe it actually diminishes the moment because it can never do it justice. And this is one of those moments. And so there are no words spoken. Only the sound of Joseph's weeping breaks the silence for a long time. And understandably so. I mean, I know how I would feel. But at some point, Jacob says to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Having seen Joseph's face, Jacob feels that he can now die in peace, and we're going to see that Jacob actually goes on to live another 17 years. And that is really interesting, because that's how old Joseph was when his brother sold him into slavery. That is how old he was when Jacob lost him, believing him to be dead. In other words, Jacob had Joseph for 17 years before he lost him, and now he'll get him back for 17 years. There are no coincidences in God's plan. But we finish this chapter with the last four verses, beginning with verse 31, which reads, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, 
my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So obviously, after the emotional reunion with Jacob, Joseph at some point says to his family, Look, I'll go, I'll let Pharaoh know that you've arrived, and I'll tell him my family are shepherds and and that you've been shepherds all your lives. And when Pharaoh calls for you, you tell him the same thing, that you've been shepherds all your lives so that you may live in the area of Goshen, because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And so what we see here is a smart play by Joseph to ensure that Pharaoh assigns them the land of Goshen in which to live. Because if you remember, Joseph had earlier suggested Goshen as the place for his family to settle. But Pharaoh, after giving the invitation to the family to settle in Egypt, had left the exact location unspecified. And so Joseph needs to obtain a clear and an unambiguous authorization for where the Israelites are to settle. And so he sets up a meeting for the family to be in front of Pharaoh and gives them instructions. He rehearses what they're to say to Pharaoh. And I think it's also revealing that even though shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians, Joseph wants his family to be honest, letting Pharaoh know that's what they do. This will also hopefully ensure that they're given the best pasture land, a bit removed from the rest of the Egyptians. Because Joseph also wants to sort of keep his family insulated or a little bit shielded from the influences of Egyptian society so that they can retain their unique identity. And so having them settle in Goshen would have been a really good plan. Now, in closing out this episode, I want to point out something else. And I want to go back to Jacob and Joseph being reunited. And I've mentioned some of the topology between Joseph and Jesus along the way. But here... I want you to think about Abraham and Jacob. Both of them figuratively received their sons back from the dead. Abraham's son Isaac, who was on the verge of being sacrificed by his father, who Abraham considered dead all along his emotional three-day journey to the altar. And now, Jacob, who has also received his son Joseph back from the dead. The father, receiving his son back from the dead. Both of these sons prefigure the death and the resurrection of Christ. But Joseph, even more so, because not only is he alive, he is now ruler over all. And think about Jacob's response upon hearing the unbelievably good news that Joseph was still alive. It prefigures the response from the disciples when the women tell them that Christ is alive, having been raised from the dead, because they too first react to the news with stunned disbelief and then unspeakable joy. And my prayer for all of you is that, like their faith, yours too, and like Jacob's, revives you, reorients your life, and like Jacob, sets you out on a journey where you leave behind a land plagued by suffering and look forward to the best imaginable land.